Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Sarah Lewis. She's the guest editor of the summer issue of Aperture Magazine, which addresses the role of photography in the African-American experience. Featured essayists selected by Lewis include Henry Louis Gates Jr., Carla Williams, and Maurice Berger, and featured artists include Radcliffe Roy, Lyle Ashton Harris, Leslie Hewitt, and Sally Mann. The issue is available now on newsstands at Aperture's website, where it sells for just 19 bucks, as well as on digital platforms such as Kindle and Zinio. Lewis is an assistant professor of art and architecture and African-American studies at Harvard University. On the second segment, co-curator Malin Wilson-Powell discusses Mabel Dodge Luhan and Company, American Moderns in the West, which is on view now at the Harwood Museum in Taos, New Mexico. She co-curated the show with Lois P. Rudnick. But first, Sarah Lewis, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall, explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly, delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry, Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew, and examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts, or search for it in your favorite podcast player. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th century European aristocracy, some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash high society for more. And we're back. Sarah Lewis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So when Aperture decided to devote an issue to the black experience and allowed you to choose a theme, you chose vision and justice, which is interesting in, in lots of ways. One of them being that's not a phrase that exists much. I mean, if one looks through the literature of American history or the black experience in America, that's not a phrase that pops up a lot. So why vision and justice? Well, it is a phrase I invented, so I'm not surprised it doesn't pop up much. But for me, it was synoptic of a, a thematic that I've been writing about and I'm interested in, which is looking at the impact and the central role that, that images have played in the relationship of race, citizenship, and justice in this country. I chose the theme of vision and justice, though, and not photography and justice or images and justice, because this project is not about the impact of the visionary work of one artist or another, but is instead about the transformative role that pictures, photography, images in general have upon our, our vision of the world. 
this is an idea that is really derives from the scholarship, the writings of Frederick Douglass during the Civil War in his lectures, pictures and progress in which he was looking at the phenomenology of photography, the way in which it creates, as he called them, thought pictures, kind of images in us that affect a, a sort of criticality required for justice. Since Douglas, has photography been more important to that idea than any other medium? Photography does have a unique relationship between racial science you know, and, and American culture, beginning with J.T. Zeely and Louis Agassiz's project to attempt to prove polygenesis through the pictures of American and African-born so-called Negroes at the time, right? I certainly could imagine this project and do imagine this project as broader than photography. I think the, the invitation by Aperture certainly did focus me on, on the medium, but I'm glad that it did because I do think it's, it's worthwhile to explore how this medium in particular has been really central for this conversation. And, and Douglas realized that right, right away. He's, he's working and thinking and traveling at a time when painting is the old dominant thing, photography is the new thing. Why do you think he was interested in photography and not older media, if you will? The main reason that Douglas was focused on photography, or, and really the term you could use for all this as kind of representational justice, right? is because he was trying to subvert the very tool that had been used to prove the inhumanity of African-Americans to show our full humanity, right? He was, this is not the first time he lectured on pictures. He wrote a, a speech in 1854 about the American School of Ethnology's attempt right, to prove polygenesis. And he was, he was long interested in this and really rewrote, I should say, this speech three times over the course of his life. He was so determined to understand this relationship of photography and race. Photography was, was new, and there were a glut of images around people for the first time. You know, in his speech, he, he comically talks about how when you go into people's homes, people push images on you. They, they want a reaction to them. They, their worlds are really fashioned by them. And today, because of the opportunity that technology offers to disseminate images at a speed which we've never seen before, I think we're, we sense, too, the urgency of understanding the impact of these images, both productively and, and seeing the challenges that they present. So Douglas and Sojourner Truth, to name another figure of the period, both seize on the idea of, of representation of people in photographs as being interesting and important. And that's an idea that has remained central to black photographers and black artists ever since, whereas there's a really dominant landscape tradition among especially northern white artists in the 19th century and, and continuing into the 20th century. Among black artists and photographers, representation of people is, is, is the thing. Why? No, I think it's a great, a great question. I should first, you know, to get into the conversation about the centrality of figurative portraiture and race, I think the first kind of odd item to top line that indicates its importance is the fact that Frederick Douglass, as my colleague John Stoffer at Harvard is, has pointed out, is the most photographed American man in the 19th century. Right? He was deliberately in front of the camera and understood the role of photography as an instrument for sort of representational liberation as much as Sojourner Truth did. Her quote about the reason why she was in front of the camera so much was that she was selling the shadow to support the substance, right? 
and Douglas was was understanding it in a similar way. He was using his own body in order to combat stereotypes that had been you know pervasive and disseminated through the medium of genre paintings, but also of of photography. Louis Agassiz, you know, famously had commissioned J.T. Zeely to photograph American and African-born so-called Negroes in order to prove polygenesis. And and Douglas likely knew this, you know. He understood the way in which photography was being used as an instrument to cement fictions of race that were being hardened into fact and was trying to use the very same medium that was sort of reading African-Americans out of the human family to read African-Americans back in. So it's no surprise that the vision and justice issue uh, of Aperture that I've guest edited is, is dominated by you know, figurative work, although we certainly have, we, we certainly have artists who are, are known for other work, like Leslie Hewitt and, and Latoya Ruby Frazier's work here is actually about urban landscapes. But the central role that the figure, the black figure has played with photography has meant such a, has had such a fraught relationship from the very start that much of the history of the medium, much of the history of the medium of photography of and by African-Americans has been dominated by this sort of century-long chapter beginning, you could argue, with W.B. Du Bois's exhibition of Georgian Negroes through the present day by an attempt to undo the deliberate denigrating narrative begun by racial science. Fast forwarding a little bit, what is the Black Photographer's Annual and why is it important? So the Black Photographer's Annual, which Carla Williams in the Aperture she writes about beautifully, is the opportunity and sort of initiative created by Black photographers to step into the breach when publishing wasn't offering opportunities for Black photographers to have their work shown to aggregate collections of work and to be able to disseminate this to, to an audience that hadn't seen it. You know, when I was editing the issue, I didn't know this, but have just learned that in the same year that Black, the Black Photographer's Annual was published in 1973, Minor White received a letter asking whether or not he would consider Anthony Barboza's work as the subject of a publication. There isn't a response to the letter, but it does should say the lack of response to the letter does indicate the reasons why Black Photographers Annual needed to exist. So what, if somebody had seen an issue of, of Black Photographers Annual, what would they have seen? Was it, was it all pictures? Was it pictures and text? What, what would the physical thing have, have been? So if people were opening up Black Photographers Annual, they would see works by photographers who are still active today. Janie Mutusumi ash Ming Smith, See Danny Dawson, many of the photographers who are in Kamawenge groups work, images by Roy DeCarava, they'd be able to see these spreads. And fortunately, the readers of Aperture's Vision Justice issue are able to see many of them as well. I deliberately wanted to show in the issue works by those photographers that I just mentioned all of whom, with the exception of Roy DeCarava, are still working today in order to really underscore the landmark role of this issue for, for the practice of these photographers. How much time have recent historians spent on, on, on those photographers and on the publication itself? Much of the scholarship on those photographers and the exhibitions of their work have really been pioneered by you know, photo historian Deborah Willis, right? 
one of the reasons that this issue exists and this aperture issue exists is to acknowledge that the standard accounts of photography haven't yet included the works of many African-American photographers like those I just mentioned who are in Black Photographers Annual. So there are a little more than a dozen artists whose, whose work is featured in the issue. Were, were you the one who picked the whole list? Oh, yes. Could you pick a couple of photographers and, and detail kind of how they fit in, into your theme and how your theme, I don't want to say informs your work, because like informs their work, because like you said, you, you invented the phrase, but, but why you think it's a good fit? Let me just first say, when I agreed to guest edit this issue and was really fortunate to work with incredible now colleagues in Michael Famagetti and, and Chris Boot, who runs Aperture, I was insistent upon this not being a one-off. I was determined to make sure that readers understood that you simply cannot select 12 artists and call it synoptic or a, a full summary of black photography as it relates to vision and justice. I wanted to have, you know, this be a multi-volume, multi-year project. I, and, and I feel I'm just thrilled that Aperture is going to organize this exhibition that I'll curate on the same theme that will travel around the U.S., that this magazine will be also a publication, really. So it's the outline for a much larger project. So I want to say that from the start, because there are many other artists that could have come onto the pages. And this issue is fatter, thicker than, than most already. But the, the theme of vision and justice, I think, required looking at both historical and contemporary images, both emerging photographers and established photographers. I think... And people will see that full range. They'll see Awal Rescu and, and Leslie Hewitt. They'll look at and know some of the works by Carrie Mae Weems and Dawood Bay and, and Deborah Willis. They might not know or and might be more surprised to see photographers that are using the platform of, of Instagram, like Rudy Roy, and, and be surprised to see that his work is included here. So, too, might they be surprised to see Devin Allen, I might imagine, whose work came to prominence through his coverage of the Baltimore uprisings through Time magazine. But I mention all those artists to really give you a sense of how broad and how capacious I, I wanted the issue to be in its embrace of the different platforms that artists are using to have their works engage with social justice and how inclusive I hope that increasingly the art world can be in, in honoring th those practices. One of the filters that I used when editing, or really I should say curating the pages of the magazine, was to look at how photographers have furthered what I would call the corrective move that really only photography can have for images that honor the dignity of black life. I think one of the highest kind of exponents of that is the work of Jamel Shabazz. We, we feature his Honor and Dignity series in the issue with an essay by Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And each work that shows either the stoicism of the fruit of Islam, the nation of Islam, the ranks, as that image is called, from 1997, or the love between two men on the street in remembering Malcolm from 2008, or rather it's printed in 2008, but it's taken 2003, I think shows these rare expressions of a level of pride and, and, and honor in the black community. Jamel Shabazz also, just as a photographer, I should say, he just exemplifies the, the very love that just, I think, emanates, radiates from each of his images for black culture. He, he is 
I think, just a gem. And his work is not seen often enough. There are also other portfolios like that of Sally Mann, whose work is a great essay, I think, in this volume by John Stauffer, that condense 150 years of history into an image, right? Her series that we're, we're showing here is from her untitled series, but it's looking at the legacy of slavery in the South through the bodies of Black men. There's one very haunting picture for me, which shows, it's a vertical that shows a seemingly sleeping Black man on this wooden plank, lying on it in a position that would make anyone uncomfortable to sleep. And it's a position that, to me, condenses a, a sort of a visual look at the Middle Passage, looks at, you know, pictures. It gives you a sense of the confinement of the origins of African Americans on American soil. It's, I think, kind of instantiated through a printing process that antiquates it. I think it's, it's incredibly powerful, this body of work. And in fact, I will confess that I cried editing her issue, her, that I cried when I was selecting the pictures that would go into the issue that were, that were so arresting and so moving. And if I could jump in really quickly, that image more than, that Sally Mann more than any picture probably in the issue references the description of a slave ship print of the British slave ship Brooks that you mentioned in your essay. Right. So Sally Mann is referencing the broadside, the description of the slave ship Brooks, which was used in parliamentary hearings as evidence of the inhumanity of slavery. And what I write about is the way in which that broadside and its efficacy shows us the origins of this relationship between vision and justice. It shows us the way in which oftentimes a picture can get us to understand our own blind spots, can get us to see past societal failure, can get us to understand what we have hardened and kind of codified into law and need to undo. So she, she's dealing, I think, with the origins of this relationship of race and image making and justice in that one picture. We'll both have an image of that broadside on manpodcast.com, but we will also link to a 4,000 pixel wide larger image of it so that listeners can see the, the detail and, 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 and understand the clearer relationship between the picture and between Sally, man's picture, and, and, and the print. And there's real geographic and, and gender diversity in your, in your selections, too. There's also an essay in the issue titled Picturing Obama by Maurice Berger. We talked with Katie Grannon, who, who took a couple of new portraits of the president for the New York Times magazine a couple of weeks ago. Why was it important to include not just photographers and artists creating, but an essay built around a subject? I think it's important to have this essay, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we could commission Maurice Berger to write it, because it helps us deal with the centrality of and the transformation, I think, in people's minds that occurred through the glut of images, both initially at times and, and perhaps continually denigrating and triumphant, you know. Douglas had a line in his Pictures in Progress speech in which he was looking at the role of pictures in the presidency. You know, For me, having the words section of the issue begin with Henry Louis Gates' essay on Douglas and, and nearly conclude with Maurice Berger's piece on Obama was meant to offer a kind of synoptic look at, at this development. 
When we look at pictures of Obama, I think it reminds us that the work of of global citizens today is to look at pictures with both, you know, your retinal mind and your reading mind, right? Pictures of the presidency require, I think, a high degree of visual literacy, which you know, I write about it in the editor's note a bit. And why is that? Well, early pictures take, and, and by pictures here, I don't just mean photographs, early images of the then candidate Obama embedded oftentimes tropes of a black identity onto his body or onto the body of Michelle Obama, right? Which required that you had a sense of um, how representation communicated a stereotype, right? Take, for example, the cover of The New Yorker that had the fist bump between Michelle Obama and President Obama with her depicted as Angela Davis, revolutionary, right? Despite the fact that she'd done nothing to indicate she was, and Obama turbaned, I believe, right? You know, that's an image that requires you that you read it and see it. You know, the presidency, the images of Obama of the last eight years have shown the the paradox, right, in in picturing black identity. That pictures are, can often be used to correct narratives, but they can also they can also be used to further them. And it's very rare to have in one figure a body of work that shows you perhaps with, with kind of equal strength, you know, this both strains, right? No, it does. And it reminds me how we as a nation do this with presidents. I mean, John F. Kennedy's relative youth and perception of his energy level became an avatar for 60s America. Maybe not an avatar, but was certainly considered to represent 60s America. So naturally, the way America's first black president is portrayed is going to have historians and theorists will and, and social commentators will read lots of things into what will be an extraordinary photographic record and, and, and an unusually open photographic record through the things like Pete Souza's Flickr feed that anybody can access and photos that anybody can use because they're all available via Creative Commons. Yeah, yeah, and I was really thrilled that you know, White House photographer Pete Souza loved the issue and, and apparently had delivered it to Obama, which is very exciting. At the end of your introductory essay, you wrote that you would visit your grandfather, who lived in Virginia, and that you and he would spread paintings and drawings out on the dining room, t- dining room table and that y'all would share them. What were they of? What did you look at? My grandfather largely inspired my interest in this topic because he became a painter and a jazz musician after he was expelled from public school in New York in 1927 for asking where African-Americans were in the history books. And apparently the teacher said that African-Americans had done nothing to merit inclusion. And my grandfather refused to to take that as an answer and was expelled for his so-called impertinence. So as you can imagine, or maybe it isn't obvious, but his images were of and of the very scenes that he hoped and and knew did exist in African-American life. In a way, it was a bit like he was a Kahende Wiley in, in the 30s and 40s and 50s before there was one. So his his images, many of them pastel, oil pastel drawings, were of African Americans. There many of them were genre scenes. He was commissioned to do this stained glass piece in a church that I just learned about, and I'm excited to to view that soon. But I was really taken by them as a kid because of just 
the insistence on showing dignity and joy in the African-American subjects that he chose. He would often use kind of otherworldly sort of colors to depict skin. It was as if he was just trying to show a, a sense of sort of brilliance and, and radiance that, that was really powerful to me. So I think he would be somewhere. He is probably smiling, but his granddaughter is now a professor of art history and African-American studies at Harvard. Do you still have all the pictures? I have a few of them. I have a few. I live with one, but a few went to my cousins. <laughs> so we share. Sarah Lewis, thanks for talking with me. Great. Thank you, Tyler. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. Blaffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronet, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronet has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents an exhibition by Joel Shapiro, one of the most prominent and influential sculptors of the era. The colorful, immersive installation, conceived specifically for the space of the Renzo Piano Design Galleries of the Nasher, pushes the artist's decades-long investigation of geometric form into new terrain. The exhibition features brightly painted, suspended forms that hover in space at different heights and angles, along with a series of recent drawings and key works by Shapiro from the Nasher's permanent collection. See Joel Shapiro through August 21st at the Nasher Sculpture Center. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Welcome back. My next guest is Malin Wilson-Powell who co-curated the exhibition Mabel Dodge Luhan and Company, American Moderns in the West with Lois P. Rudnick. It's at the Harwood Museum in Taos, New Mexico through September 11th. The show looks at the extraordinary range of artists and thinkers that Dodge Luhan brought into the Southwest to both learn about America past and present and to make work, artists such as Marsden Hartley and John Marin. The exhibition catalog, which is quite good, was published by University of New Mexico Press. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Malin Wilson-Powell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, it's so nice to be invited, Tyler. Start at the simplest, most obvious place. Who was Mabel Dodge and then, you know, eventually, of course, Mabel Dodge Luhan? Mabel Dodge was a Victorian single daughter of a prominent and prosperous Buffalo family. Her family was, she says that no one ever hugged her. No one loved her. So she actually took it upon herself to be an adventuress as a child. 
and she had her own pony trap. And Buffalo was this uh, a kind of bustling city. It wasn't the Rust Belt then, and had beautiful parks. It had, uh, and she would often go to the cemetery. You know, those 19th century cemeteries were pretty wonderful. And there was a, a sculpture, bronze sculpture on a plinth of a red jacket who was a Native American who presented lecture I mean not lectures, but presented a speech in at in Congress and he said, you know, why can't we be left alone, basically? Why can't we live our life? So she had this early romance. But of course, it was the romance of Native Americans that were disseminated. So she then went on, to, she went to a girls' school. Girls' schools were a place where young girls could be thoughtful and independent. And her first mentor was her teacher, a very good pictorialist photographer, Rose Clark, who Stieglitz uh, said was one of the best 20 pictorialists in the country. And then she was married briefly, (laughs) and her husband died in a hunting accident, and she was pregnant. A young woman, she was only 21. She was kind of scandalous in her her young youthfulness. She had an affair with the local doctor, and her mother said, I think we better get this young lady out of town. And she went on a boat to Europe (laughs) with her four-year-old child. And on the boat, she met her second husband, who was an architect, Edwin Dodge, from Boston. She, She didn't really love Edwin. She just said, you know, if you can... If we can make a beautiful life and you can take on take me on, will and I and my child needs a father. So they bought a villa in Florence and Mabel decided to recreate the Renaissance because she thought the Renaissance was the height of culture. But then she sort of it sort of became tedious. And she visited Paris and met Gertrude and Leo Stein and saw their work. And she was converted to modernism. And people who were modernists came to visit her, like Mina Loy and Gertrude and Leo. And uh, she threw herself into the sort of modernist world. And her home became, she started having evenings. And of course, all of the kind of expat literary cultural world of uh, Florence came to see what she and and Edwin had done. They made beautiful gardens. She did the gardens. Mabel did the gardens and decorated the house. And Edwin, he built a 90-foot grand salon so she could have her guests. So, you know, Eleanor Duza came. I mean, it was just an international meeting place. And then the war, she saw the war was coming and she came back to the United States and she, her, her timing was impeccable. She came back in November, 1912 and met Stieglitz and uh, cause anyway, she, she came back and she told her son, look, this is all ugly. It's industrial. It's coal driven. It's, I'm, but I'm going to create something else here. And by this time, she and Edwin were living apart. 
and she decided to take an apartment and she de- painted it all white and decorated it in all white silk that she brought from Europe. <laughs> so it was the first kind of white environment, all white environment in a cold, cold fired city. And then meantime, she threw herself, she became a vice president of the armory show and used her, her, she, she had a driver, of course, a chauffeur, and they went around and picked up art. She collected art. She told people about things. It was sort of a curatorial thing. And at the armory show, she, the only non-art object in the armory show was the Gertrude Stein's writing, the portrait of Mabel Dodge at the Villa Coronia. And so she introduced Stein's writing to America. And that was pretty exciting. And, you know, so she had her salon and became the most sort of famous salonier in New York City at the time. Then how does she take that idea and decide to migrate it out west into northern New Mexico? I would say that the uh, the war was a was a, a, a big part of that the the great war the first war, world war as they now call it. She decided that uh, she wanted to get out of the city that it was too depressing. So she got a country place in Croton on Hudson, and then she married Maurice Stern, who was a Lithuanian artist who'd been traveling the world and who also knew the sign collection and so they had this and they some they got married on a whim they got married when they were out motoring about in the countryside so and when when Maury said let's go on a honeymoon she said well why don't you go so he went on the honey honeymoon alone and they went to and he went to the west and he he wrote her from Santa Fe and said, "Come west, my dear child." Oh, she would she just loved that, you know. Here's this woman. Here's this woman who has a a column for the Hearst newspapers where she's talking about psychoanalysis and free love, and then this guy calls her dear girl. So, anyways, come to New Mexico and save the Indian. So she gets on the train, comes to New Mexico, and they land in near Santa Fe. I mean, the train doesn't actually come into Santa Fe. Doesn't train doesn't come into Santa Fe, but she gets here. After a few days, she's decided, oh my, Santa Fe is pretty populated already. I mean, you know, there's a big social scene here, and she had seen a house painting in New York, in the Taos Society of Artists, and it was very romanticized, Native Americans. And so she said, I want to go to Taos. So Taos, this is right before, uh, it's like New Year's Eve, and the road to Taos is torturous at that time. It takes an entire day to go up this little road and Oh, it's, it's, it was really hard, and it's snowing, and it's cold, and she gets there in the dark, and she gets out of the carriage, and she goes, I love it. I'm staying here. She rents a house that night from a, a local doctor. She wakes up in the morning, and then, you know, she says her life broke in two at that moment as she was going up to Taos, and she saw the sort of majesty 
of the West. And then she finds out that Tao's Pueblo are having all of these dances, and she immediately goes out there because now this is not dead Native American culture. This is a living Native American culture. And she hears this drumming. She hears this beautiful voice, and she walks in to this small, you know, adobe apartment at the Taos Pueblo, and there's this beautiful man singing with this beautiful voice. And she looks at him, and they look at each other. And I mean, this is all, you know, retrospectively <laughs> told by her. But she says, oh, my God, this is the man who's, uh, whose face blotted out Maurice's in my dream. And it was uh, Tony Lujan. And they started seeing each other. I mean, it was a definitely a mutual attraction there. So Tony was married to a woman named Condelaria. And Mabel started after not very long, she started giving Condelaria a monthly income. And so, so Tony left Condelaria and moved in with Mabel. And the Taos Pueblo Native Americans started building her 17-room compound on the edge of the Pueblo land that Tony found her. So, you know, it was quite a shocking thing to do at the time for a sort of even a radical socialite from the East to marry a Native American I mean, and then they became very politically active, and artists started visiting her right away. Of course, Maurice was gone by August, so they she, she started living there on January 1st, and Maurice was gone by August. So it's kind of a wonderful, she built us six guest houses and 17-room house, and that's what people do with Adobe. It's kind of addictive. People just keep adding another room and another room. (laughs) And she really wanted to make Taos. She really thought the paradigm that, you know, the, the Western world, the sophisticated world she was raised in had, had produced this war, this brutal war and also great divisions among people. And she was always a pluralist. And so in a way, you know, she did not, she liked diversity And her salon in New York uh, reflected it. Everything from, you know, trade unionists to, I mean, Emma Goldman, uh, Margaret Sanger, all these people were part of her salon. So she loved diversity and saw potential in that diversity and a, a new way to live in the world. And she thought that Native Americans with their kind of the way they made decisions communally and everything was a a new paradigm and that she should spread this paradigm. So she started inviting people immediately and Marston Hartley was one of the first to come and he stayed for five months and uh, we all know some of the great work that he did both in Taos but mostly as his recollections of Taos. He wrote a lot of articles about Pueblo ceremonials and you really see the movement 
of what he saw, the geologic movement, the movement of the Native American ceremonials, this kind of uh, rhythmic beat, uh, inflect his paintings. Well, let me let me jump in for a moment. You note in your catalog essay, and it's evident in the wide range of work in the show that that Mabel Dodge Luhan's contributions were less as a collector, although she collected, she had several Hartleys, than as an arranger, someone who exposed avant-garde writers and artists not just to each other in Taos, but but to these new to them. American cultures. And I wanted to pick out one of those and, and follow it down the path a bit. One of the things that artists such as Hartley found through being in Taos was Santos. What, what are, what were Santos and how do they migrate from kind of Mabel Dodge Luhan into modernist circles? Well, they were, Santos is a general term and they were made, I mean, Mabel really thought she wrote about them. She thought that they were the only true sort of indigenous art. And she found that people started coming to her door immediately with Santos because they were mostly made. It was nine months of travel from Mexico City up to New Mexico. And so there was no trade they they had to bring the the few precious things uh, like iron and you know those kinds of things on the trail and so the hispanic hispano culture was deeply religious this is what and it was pre enlightenment we have to remember that these were people who were totally devout in their lives were everything about their lives was a, about the devotion to the church. And when they came to to New Mexico, and Taos was the farthest outpost of New Spain, and very hard to get to. And there were a number of families there. And so Santos were made by local artists. They were made from slabs of wood that were ads. They were made with pigments made from plants and uh, they didn't have any other things. So this is now a, a bolto is a sculpture and a retablo is a flat painting, but none of them are flat because they all have the curve of the, of the wood of the tree in them slightly. So they, there were certain themes, and and the, there were some santos that became quite. Uh, they had workshops. They would do what were called rereros, which are the church the screens behind the altar. And so these were all there. But by the time Mabel came, the the train had come to New Mexico and brought all of these kind of offset lithos. And people were getting rid of Santos because they weren't thought to be as good as the offset. The poverty in Taos was uh, terrible at the time. And uh, just after Mabel got there, of course, came the flu, and people needed money for medicine. And so she would buy these, and so would the artists. They all bought them. And uh, some of the artists, like Andrew Dosberg, later became a dealer in Santa Fe with Mabel's son to sell these materials. 
And so they were, they're beautiful. <laughs> the art, they're also, I mean, you know, for artists who are, who are oriented to cubism or modernism or to primitive art or so-called primitive art, that fraught term, they saw these, the beauty of these things. They didn't see them as primitive. They saw them as kind of bold and raw and great. So it was the eyes of the modernists that looked on them and said, "Well, this is this is ours." And they and they don't just see it. They they find ways to bring it into their own work. I mean, in in Hartley you have his his great great small but great blessing the melon and and lots of artists from Strand to O'Keefe love the Rancho's church. Yes, well, and and actually O'Keefe did some uh, Santos too, but we didn't have them in the exhibition because they'd just been in a show at the O'Keefe Museum. And, you know, lenders don't like to to have their things out all the time. <laughs> and Marin, Marin had some Santos also. In the Santos, there are often vestigial curtains because that was what they had the, were in some of the kind of paintings, European-style paintings. There was kind of a stage setting around uh, the saints. And so Marin started using this idea, uh, this internal framing in his work when he saw the Santos. So does Mabel in any kind of verbal way encourage artists and writers to engage with northern New Mexico culture, or is it once people get there, they it's just it, it was just so new and different and visually interesting that that's where they went. Well, no, I think she encouraged it very much, and I think I think she also. I mean, Tony had this great car. He had this. Cadillac convertible, and he loved driving everybody around to all these ceremonials, and and so people were naturally introduced to these things. I mean, pueblos can be very secretive, and they don't accept outsiders. But with Tony as their kind of guide, he, a lot of the artists were accepted in a way they never would have been, and. Uh, they have secular dances also, and they would come, the, the Pueblo Indians would come over and dance at Mabel's house. And Tony went to New York with one of his drummers and, and sang in New York to try to raise funding for political action to save Pueblo lands. And so it was all integrated. I mean, you couldn't avoid it, really. You really could not avoid it. So meeting people once you got to Taos, it's a tiny place. It was even tinier then. And Mabel's house was very close to the plaza. And so people would be just walking around town and, and Mabel or somebody needed help. And they got somebody, you know, uh, she had wood carvers come in and carve the, the, the posts in her house. And, you know, people just ran into each other in a natural way. So we've mentioned Marin and Strand and O'Keefe and Hartley, four of the best known of, of the artists who, who went to Taos. Who in, in working on the show are one or two artists who you found yourself really engaged with that maybe doesn't get as much play in the traditional Eastern story of modernism? Well, I think uh, for me, the the 
One of the most magnificent artists is Agnes Pelton, who was in the original Armory exhibition and became a friend of Mabel's and would often stay with Mabel at Croton on Hudson. As she actually came out in 1919 and stayed with Mabel, she was a single woman and she was a follower of Agni Yoga, Nicholas Rorick Import, and she always single and she came to stay with Mabel and she did these beautiful pastels that had an exhibit in Santa Fe and I could never find any of them. None of them. And Mary Austin, the well-known sort of environmental, we would call her now, writer, she did, a, she, did, she did the brochure. And I was like, where are these paintings? And during the planning of the exhibition, three of the pastels that were shown in Santa Fe came up. So we have two of them in the exhibition. One is a beautiful a landscape and another is a portrait of a Taos Pueblo Indian that is just a magnificent. It's just a few strokes and it's beautiful. And so she then went on to make the, she lived in Palm Springs and she went on to her cathedral city, which is basically Palm Springs. She went on to make these beautiful transcendental painting works that are truly transcendent. And when she first started showing them at the Chicago club in 1933, she wrote to Mabel and she said, these works come from my time with you. And so that was wonderful to be able to have this work in the show and to really feature her because I've always thought, I can often find O'Keeffe's paintings dry, the surfaces. And so it was wonderful for me to be able to put the Peltons in the same gallery and they're luscious. And I found this painting, there's a woman named Dorothy Brett who came with D.H. Lawrence, and her paintings have always been completely uneven. I mean, some of them really sing, and some of them just, duh, they're flat. But I was in the uh, collection, the basement of the University of Texas Ransom Center, and there was this magnificent painting she called Feather Dance that she kept her whole life. Her archives are at U the UT Ransom Center. And they had never shown it. They've had it since the 60s. And I thought, this painting needs to come back to Taos because it's the best, uh, it is one of the best breaths I have ever seen. And then, you know, I've been with this material for a while and I realized it was the it was the painting, there's a portrait of Brett with this painting in Mabel's last book called Taos and Its Artists, published in 1947. It was the first book published about Taos artists. And so here is Brett standing with this, this painting, this feather dance. And so that was wonderful to add to the show. Love it. We'll try to have images of all those as well as Marin's couple of Marin's Taos watercolors on manpodcast.com. Malin Wilson-Powell, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.